All right, happy Sabbath, church. Have you been blessed thus far? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. We're glad you're here, one and all. Turn in your Bibles to John 3.16. You might say, well, I have that memorized. That's good. Turn there anyway. But that won't be the first or the last. It will be the first scripture, but it won't be the last. We're going to go through quite a few different scriptures, so have your uh, hands ready to roll. Our sermon title is called More Than an Offer. John 3.16, of course, has been described as the magnifying glass of God's love for mankind. If there was one verse that summarized the heart of the Bible, this would probably be it. All of the highways of divine truth meet in this metropolis. It is the hub of revealed truth. For this reason, it's one of the most translated verses in the Bible also. Gaylord Kambarami, the general secretary of the Bible Society Zimbabwe, tried to give a New Testament to a very belligerent man. The man insisted that he would roll the pages and use them to make cigarettes. Mr. Kambarami said, I understand that, but just promise me one thing, to read the page of the New Testament before you smoke it. The man agreed, the two went their separate ways. 15 years later, wouldn't you know it, the two men meet at a Methodist convention in Zimbabwe. The scripture-smoking pagan had found Christ and was now a full-time evangelist. Amen. He told the audience, I smoked Matthew, I smoked Mark, I smoked Luke, but when I got to John 3.16, I couldn't smoke anymore. My life was changed from that moment. Well, may God change our lives today once again as we look at his holy scriptures, not at the words of a man. We must not insert our thoughts and preconceived ideas into the gospel, but we must let the gospel be the gospel today. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your amazing love and for this amazing offer in John 3.16. Speak now for your servants. Listen, take the human instrument out of the way. Be seen, be heard, be believed upon. Draw your people close to your heart. Give us clarity of understanding, conviction of the Spirit. Make us catalysts of this good news message to the world today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, John 3 and verse 16. First of all, if you're new at this service or wondering what this table is, if you're not new, um, it's communion. And so we're glad you're here. There's quite a few things different about this service than our normal service. First of all, the sermon is shorter. We also have a children's story going on while we have foot washing. So children's story will be up here. Some of you may say, well, what is foot washing? Well, it's the biblical 
thing that the disciples did. They washed each other's feet. Jesus washed their feet, right? And so we do that. So after the, uh, the homily here, I'll have a prayer. We'll go downstairs. There are four rooms downstairs to have foot washing. There's also a room here for those that are handicapped. So just off the piano side here. So we'll do that. We'll partake of foot washing. If you weren't ready for that, no problem. You can stay here. And we would ask, though, that you prepare your hearts for partaking of the emblems before you do. And of course, we wouldn't want anyone to partake unworthily. So make sure you understand what those emblems mean. So after foot washing, we come back in here. While foot washing is going on, there's a children's story here. So you can stay right here if you like. And then we partake of communion together. And we uh, partake of open communion. So you do not have to be a Seventh-day Adventist member to partake. But again, you do need to know what the emblems mean. Okay, and then so you'll actually get the emblems out in the foyer. They'll be in little baggies, both the bread and the wine. That's the way we do it now. It's grape juice, new wine. And then we come in, we partake, we sing a song, and we head out. When we head out, there's an offering at the back of the church, which is, of course, now we do that all the time because all our offerings and tithes are taken up there. But there's a special offering for the poor, for the needy, that we partake just on this Holy Sabbath. All right, having said all that, This is so important. I try not to say every week that this is the most important sermon ever, but it's important that we understand the love of God and that it's more than an offer. It is an offer, but it's it's more than an offer. In order to remain faithful through the rough times that are ahead, we must be deeply grounded in God's word and his faithfulness to us. I want to repeat that. This is important. In order for us to remain faithful through the rough times that are ahead on this planet, we must be deeply grounded in God's word and in his faithfulness to us. Who was faithful first? He was, right? We are faithful because he was faithful first, just like love, right? We love because what? He first loved us. And it's the same with faith. He has been so faithful. We're going to talk about his faithful covenant love today in just a few brief minutes that I have. But first, John 3.16. This amazing, unlimited offer to anyone this amazing love to everyone. And you can put your name in there. For God so loved you, right? Forget about the world. He did love the world. He does love the world. But put your name in there. Make it personal. For God so loved the world, agapied the world, that he did what? Gave. Love always does that. It gives. God so loved the world that he gave. And what did he give? His only begotten son, only all of heaven in one gift, right? Something totally close to his heart, irreplaceable. He gave. Christ gave. Willingly coming 
He gave his only begotten son. And this world that he loved is not the things of the world. It's really the people, right? The people of the world. You and me. He loved you and me. And so he gave. And he didn't love us when we were good boys and girls. Yes, of course, he loves us when we're good boys and girls. But he also loved us when we were bad boys and girls. Do you believe that? He loved us even then. Did he love our bad things that we were doing? No, of course not. But he loved us even then. And so here's this offer. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but should have what? Everlasting life. So what are the two choices? Perish or everlasting life. Pretty simple, right? What an offer that God would give. This verse seen as a whole, unfortunately some people make this, rather than looking at sort of part A and part B and then putting them together, 316A and 316B, they put it together and they sort of make God's love contingent upon our believing. Do you think that's true today? Is God waiting for you to believe in order to love you? Come on now, no, that's right. He's not, right? He loved first and best and last. Oh, he loves when you believe because then he can especially come into your heart and mind and transform you and give you power. You can't do that until you believe. But he loved first. Uh, let's take a peek at it. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. We'll look at a few verses here. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. <clears throat> Glad that's in Deuteronomy because I can't go any further. No, just kidding. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 14 and onward. It says this. I've got the King James rendering this morning. Behold the heaven... And the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also, and all that are therein. It's all God's. Look at verse 15. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them. Hmm, wonder what good deed they did. Why, did. why did he love them? They must have done something wonderful, don't you think? Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them. Even you, above all the people, as it is this day. God loved them. He loved the fathers. He loved the children, the seed after them. Even you. He loved. God so loved. But why did he love? Right there in Deuteronomy, go back to chapter 7. Certainly there must be a reason for this great love. This is echoing just a teeny bit, at least up here. Okay, thank you. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6 says this. 
For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. By the way, that's a repeating phrase again and again and again in the New Testament. He could have just said the Lord, but he doesn't. He says the Lord thy God. What's the purpose of that? Well, he's not just the Lord, right? He's the Lord your God. It's a personal thing. He loves you personally. He's your God. He's the Lord. He's Yahweh. He's Jehovah, but he's your God. Make sure and read it that way as you read your Old Testament. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are on the face of the earth. Sounds like Deuteronomy 10. Now verse 7. Because you must be wondering, well, they must have been some wonderful people to have this special love. Not really. Look at verse 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were so great, because you were more in number than any people, because you were the fewest of all people. Verse 8 gives the answer. Why did he love them? But because the Lord loved you. And because he would keep his oath, his covenant, which he had sworn unto his fathers, has the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen or bondage from the hand of the king of Egypt. This is agape in the Old Testament. Then why did he love them? The answer is there in verse 8. He loved them because he loved them. Did you get that? <laughs> he loved them because he loved them. Once you try to search and find her, no, no, he had to love, he had to love Abraham for some reason, that moon worshiper, you know, and pull him out. No, no. No, once you try to find a reason, you have cheapened agape. He loved them because he loved them. Amen? Because he is agape love. Oh, it's so different from what we think. We don't love that way. We love because we find something lovable in someone. Or they're related to us and we have to love them. But we don't just love for love's sake, but God is love. He's not waiting for you to do something in order to love you. He loves you because he loves you. And it must be so. New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1. This loving and choosing you go together. We saw it in that verse. We'll see it again in Ephesians chapter 1. Some of the academy kids heard some of these verses earlier this week as I was able to, blessed to be able to share there. But in Ephesians chapter 1, <clears throat> now, this does not negate that we need to choose, amen? Of course we need to choose, but God chose you first. So now your choice is choosing whether you're going to choose his choice of you, because he chose first. 
You can say, no, I don't want that. But if you don't, if you accept and appreciate and live in and believe his choice of you, he will bring you off more than conquer in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And then verse 4. According as he has chosen you, four things you can always count on. According as he has chosen you, or chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, if he chose you before the foundation of the world, could your good works have had anything to do with it at all? Absolutely no. You, hadn't, you didn't have any good works yet. He chose you from the foundation of the world. He loved you because he loved you. He had a purpose for choosing and loving you that you should be holy and without blame before him in love. He loved you. Won't you choose him today? Won't you believe and accept that eternal life? Chapter 2 and verse 1, still in Ephesians. And you has he quickened or brought to life who were dead in trespasses and sins or being dead, he brought you to life. Verse four, now skipping down, but God who is rich in mercy, rich in love, rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. So before you believed, before you repented, before you obeyed, Christ loved you. Amen? It's that love that draws you. You wouldn't be alive if he didn't love you, amen? You couldn't respond to the offer if you were dead, right? But he's quickened you. He's brought you to life, amen? Oh, that love, that love draws us, compels us to him and to holiness. That's Ephesians chapter 2. So he gave us life before we could even believe. To every man, Romans 12, 3, has been given a measure of what? Of faith, right? You can't even take faith as something that's of you. It is of you and through you, but it's not by you. It came from God. He gave you that measure of faith. Now he says, build on it. Build on the measure of faith. I have given you life before you chose anything. Romans 5. Just a few more texts. Then we close, go to our foot washing this morning. Romans 5, 18. 
says this, Wherefore, as by the offense of one, that one would be Adam, his offense resulted in judgment upon all men to condemnation. That's what we receive from Adam, like it or not. Even so. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life, like it or not. It's God's gift, amen? His covenant love, his said in the Old Testament, it's seeking after to save you. To, it's asking you, it's pleading with you to accept the offer. Accept the offer of his love. God so loved the world. He loved you because he loved you. One more text, and I think we'll stop there. He, by the way, tasted death for every man. That's Hebrews 2.9. But go back with me to Jeremiah chapter 3. You might say there's not a lot of gospel there in Jeremiah. <laughs> this is tough book, wasn't it, you could say, but there is gospel there, Jeremiah chapter 3, and this to me is amazing. God does many things, all things that we can't do, and he does this one in relation to his love. Jeremiah chapter 3, Israel is in a bad state. Both the northern and southern kingdoms are being portrayed or spoken of as a harlot or a prostitute. And the question is, who haven't you had relations with? It's not like, it's like, who haven't you had relations? Read it, that's what it says. We'll read it right now, just briefly here. Uh, verse two, lift up thine eyes unto the high places and see where thou hast not been lying with. Who have you not laid with? You harlot Israel, you harlot my people, you prostitute. He's talking about their actions, isn't he? By the way, verse 3, very important. Therefore, why has the latter rain been withheld? Therefore, the showers have been withholden, and there has been no latter rain and thou hast had a whore's forehead and refused to be ashamed. And then all through chapter three, God is calling, God is calling, God is calling. Come back, return. Verse seven. Turn back to me, turn. He's calling one who has been unfaithful to him to come back. His love knows no bounds. Verse 12, go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, return thou backsliding Israel. Return, please come home. He says that again and again and again. Again in verse 22, return ye backsliding children and I will heal your backslidings. Behold, we come unto thee, for thou 
art the Lord thy God. Now go in, the, in understanding this, this is the, sort of the context of Jeremiah, go to chapter 31. We know the promise there. It's God's new covenant promise. Before he offered you anything, he gave you something. And then he offers you eternal life through it. This was amazing to me. I've read this so many times. I knew the promise here. Uh, verse 2, we'll start with verse 3 actually. But it's verse 4 that really took me by surprise in this last reading, especially with the understanding of Jeremiah 3. It says this, the Lord has appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. That's God's agape. It's an everlasting love. It's an eternal love. He will love unto the very end. And if we don't choose to be with him throughout eternity, there will be a place in his heart that will always be there for us. But look at verse 4. You'll love with an everlasting love this harlot. Verse 4. Again, I will build thee, and thou shalt be built. O virgin of Israel, and I will heal thy wounds, says the Lord. Now, once one has become a prostitute, would it ever be accurate to then call that one a virgin? We, couldn't, we can't say that. <laughs> we could never say that because it would never be true humanly, but God says it. And God believes it. It's the view from heaven toward you. It's just as if you never sinned. It's justification. God, in his eyes, looks at you as if you have never sinned. He not only forgives your sin, but he restores the relationship. All of this is in justification. Justification by faith, then, is whosoever believes, amen, shall receive. That's what faith is. It's believing, it's accepting, it's appreciating this great love. You may see yourself not that great, you may see yourself accurately. Maybe your life isn't that great. But God still sees you in this way of justification. He can call a prostitute a virgin because that's how he sees. He's looking down at you through the lens of Christ and he sees you in all that you are to him and all that you can be through him. Oh, the love of God. Isaac Watts wrote about it. Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? 
would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? I hate when we change this verse. That's the way he wrote it. <laughs> Was it for sins that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity. Grace unknown. And love beyond degree. But drops of tears can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Let's pray. Oh, Father, just these few glimpses of who you are and how you see us and who we are in Christ should thrill our souls today. And Lord, it should cause us to look at that offer as altogether precious and valuable. And in the light of that most precious and valuable offer, the whole world poured out in one gift. Oh Lord, make us believers. We believe, help thou our unbelief. Thank you for your love. May we not try to put our views into it, but allow you to speak from your word. May your gospel be your gospel today in us and through us to this world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go for foot washing now, and we'll come right back and partake of communion. Thank you so much. Well, hello, friends. Today I want to share with you regarding the meaning of the Lord's Supper. There are two main ordinances in the Christian church in general and also in the Seventh-day Adventist church. One of them is baptism and the other is the Lord's Supper, which is also called communion. This consists of partaking of what the Bible calls the fruit of the vine and also a piece of unleavened bread. The bread represents the perfect life of Christ. And the juice, we use grape juice in the Seventh-day Adventist church, represents the death that he died for the whole human race, all of mankind. And when you take the emblems, you are in essence saying that you are in agreement with what Christ did for you and you are partaking of that. And basically saying that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior of your life. Now to understand the importance of the Lord's Supper is crucial, not just how to take it, but the attitude in which we are to come when we take it. In Paul's passage on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, 
He says that whosoever would eat of the bread or drink of the cup unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of Christ. So this is a super important thing. We definitely want to learn what it means to partake of communion in a worthy manner. Now, what does it mean to be worthy? Does that mean you have to be perfect before you come to the table? Absolutely not. The very fact that you're coming to the table means that you realize you are unworthy and that you are in need of a Savior. You should come with an attitude of contrition and repentance for your unworthiness and a full surrender to Jesus Christ and his great worthiness. You're looking to him and his perfect life that he lived for you and his sacrificial death that he died on your behalf. That focus, of course, should create a gratefulness, a thankfulness of heart that God would pay such a price for your soul. You may find, as I have often found, that it will be a time of shedding of tears, grateful tears of joy for the all-surpassing love of God for you. Now, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we preempt the communion service with something called foot washing. Foot washing service, or sometimes called an ordinance of humility. The foot washing service is where men get together with men, women with women, and then we have families also, and they wash each other's feet, just like Jesus washed his disciples' feet. This is meant to be a time of reflection, a time of humility, and a time to focus on the love of Christ also. It's also a time to confess our sins one to another and to allow God's cleansing power to come over us. From that foot washing, then we come back into our sanctuary and partake of the emblems of Christ's body and his spilled blood. And so again, those emblems represent his perfect life in the bread and the grape juice representing his life poured out in death for us. And this service really should be one of the high points of our Christian experience. The deep significance of this ordinance I don't think could be overstated. It's, it's just, it's crucial. And in the Old Testament, when the Passover was instituted, Moses wanted to make sure that that was understood and that the people would pass on its meaning from generation to generation, that the deep significance of it would not be lost. Exodus 12, 26, 27, Moses says this, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel 
in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And so what Christ instituted now takes the place of the Passover that the Jews have been celebrating for millennia. Imagine replacing something that's been around in a church for a thousand years. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did in that upper room that night when he instituted the Lord's Supper to take the place of the Passover celebration. No longer must a lamb be slain as it was in the Passover. No longer must there be shedding of the blood of an animal. Sometimes it wasn't a lamb in other cases, but now no blood is to be shed because that blood symbolized something. It pointed forward to something. And now that is symbolized by the elements here on the communion table. Christ's perfect life in the bread and his sacrificial death in the wine, which is grape juice. And so type had met anti-type. It's as if Christ did away with one and established the other. The Passover looked back in time to when God's people were saved by blood, the blood that was spread over the door frames of their houses. It also looked forward to something. It looked forward to the blood of Christ as our Savior. And so in the upper room, when Christ institutes the Lord's Supper, now this is training us, teaching us to remember, to look back to the cross, to the beautiful cross where Christ died for us. Back to the cross where we see his sacrificial death and even then to his perfect life which he lived on this earth. And so if your kids ever ask you, why do we do this? We can simply tell them that the Lord's Supper is all about Christ and his plan of salvation for them. Now, children don't partake of these emblems until they're of an age where they can fully understand. We wouldn't want them to partake unworthily. But you can start explaining it to them much younger than that. And I would encourage you to do that. You can also tell them that Jesus himself instituted this service and he told us to do it. And so therefore, in obedience to him, out of love for him, we do this beautiful service where angels come especially near. God wanted us to remember and never forget that he was willing to risk his very existence that we might live for eternity. So before I close, I want to go through with you the very words that I would use in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and onward. That is the passage, Paul's passage as he's quoting Jesus. And that is the passage that I would use most often. It's a very familiar passage. It's truly a diamond in the rough. 
the church at Corinth had a lot of issues, and Paul had to deal with those issues, and he did that in 1 Corinthians and some in 2 Corinthians, but more in 1 Corinthians. But here, in the midst of all that counsel for all the things that were happening there, is this great passage. And indeed, it is um, sort of a diamond in the midst of um, a lot of counsel that wasn't quite as positive. So verse 23 goes as follows. This is the New American Standard Version I have today. It says, For I have received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you. Now, it says he received it from the Lord. Paul didn't make this up. He didn't make any of his writings up. But this is clearly something he received from the Lord. And he's passing now along to them. For I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Some of your versions will say, and I've read it for years, uh, that this is my body which is broken for you. That is an unfortunate translation and doesn't jive with scripture, does it? We know not a bone in his body was broken. So the better translation is what is said here in the New American Standard. This is my body, Christ said, which is for you. Christ is for us not against us. And this whole symbolic ordinance that we partake of is to point us back to the cross again and again and again. By the way, in the Adventist church, we partake of the communion service basically quarterly. That too is not identified in scripture as the way to do it. It just says, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. We've decided that quarterly is the best way for us where it doesn't cheapen it. If you did it every week, it might lessen its significance and you don't want it too far apart either. So we do it on a quarterly basis. And so Christ then says that he broke this bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He died for us. He died for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, in the Hebrew mind, remember wasn't just something that, oh yeah, I remember what seven times seven is. It was much deeper than that. It had, it had a significance of meaning, kind of a reliving what happened in the past. That's what it means to remember. Remember the Sabbath days. And oh yeah, I know that's Saturday. No, no, it's much more than that. It's about reliving what the Sabbath really means. And so here he says, remember, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, Jesus said. For as often as you do eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. So this is an act of proclamation. We love for non-believers. We love for believers. We love for anybody uh, video-wise to see this because we are proclaiming something when we partake of these beautiful emblems. So his body and then the cup, the new covenant in my blood. Christ's blood was shed for you and was shed for me. What a great, meaningful service this is that Christ would come close and shed his blood for us, be nailed on a cross that we might have our sins completely done away with. What a wonderful God we serve. Let us pray as we close. Dear Father, we thank you for this very meaningful ordinance. May it touch our hearts and transform our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.